We do appreciate the presence of each one this morning, every individual. We're glad you're here and uh, pray that uh, your experience here has been good and continues to be good. So we worship together and spend time, a little bit of time in prayer together and singing a few songs together and just in encouraging ourselves, building ourselves up, getting ourselves ready to, to face the world this week. And so we really appreciate everybody taking the time to be here. How important is that to be here to experience this encouragement, to have our children here exposed to this kind of environment. And so just a wonderful opportunity. I'll invite you to turn to the book of Matthew today. We're talking about some passages that summarize for us what the Lord requires of us. In fact, uh, we've taken that kind of as a title for this series of lessons, looking at these several different passages what does the Lord require of you? And so I'll just kind of go back over some of the passages or the passages that we've looked at. We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. And so that's a, that's a good summary of what God requires of us, what He expects from us, what we can do that will please Him. And, and notice it's, it's not, you know, give me your material things or offer your firstborn child or it's not even go to church every week. And all, although those things might be important, especially the going to church every week and giving as He directs us to do, that's not the heart of the matter. The heart is to love the Lord your God, to fear Him, to walk with God, to keep His commandments. The second passage we looked at is from uh, the book of Psalms, the, the Psalms, the 34th Psalm. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? You want to live a good life? You want to enjoy life? Here's what you need to do. Keep your tongue from evil your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's a good summary of how we can live our life. And not only will we enjoy our life here and now, but we'll be pleasing to God as we live it. Then we went to Jeremiah chapter 9. And Jeremiah chapter 9, or this is Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. And so this is a part of a, a longer passage, and we looked at various things from this passage, but this is really the heart of the passage, I think. How can we please God? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and it'll be smooth sailing for you. He'll make your path straight. Then Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, says the Lord. What pleases the Lord? What does he delight in? Loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. So we talked about each one of those. In fact, talked about some of them in multiple sermons. We then went to the book of Micah chapter 6. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? 
but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. You know, a good summary of how we ought to live life that will please the Lord. Do these things. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with God. Well, we're going to go to the New Testament this morning. We're going to look at a statement made by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to kind of set it up first and then take a look at it in maybe its, its, its context. It takes place, in, I think, in what must have been one of the high points of Jesus' ministry. He takes his apostles really outside of Palestine, up, up to the north, up near Mount Hermon, sort of, sort of kind of away from the crowds, away from people bringing their sick folk to him, impressing upon him, wanting him to heal them, away from the detractors who are criticizing him, trying to find fault in him, asking questions one after another after another, away from all the people that are just seeking a blessing from him, maybe seeking to hear him teach. And so sort of a private moment away from all of that up in the region of Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi. It's a place that was already uh, long associated with pagan religion. And so here is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. He's with his closest associates, the apostles, and uh, kind of a private moment with them. And he asks them, who do men say that I am? What are people saying out there? You, know, you go and you circulate among the, the people. What, what are they saying about who, who do they think I am? And they say, well, you know, there's a variety of opinion. Some think you're Jeremiah. Some think you're one of the prophets. Uh, some have others opinion about, other opinions about you. But, and so there's a variety of opinions. Some say Jeremiah. He says, okay, all right. Now, what do you say? Who do you say I am? And I've got to think that's really the main point he's driving at. I want to know what you think about me. You've been with me now for some time. You've heard me teach. You've seen how I handle myself. You've seen the miracles. Now, now, what do you say about me? Who do you say that I am? And you'll remember that Peter speaks up and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. No doubt reflecting the opinion of all the apostles. I'm sure in their private moments, they've talked about that. Who do you think he is? Did you see that? What do you think about that? What, what's your opinion of him? What's your opinion of him? And so they've come to this conclusion... We believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I, I, it doesn't explicitly say, but I imagine Jesus has a sense of relief perhaps or some satisfaction when he hears Peter say that. He blesses him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You're getting it. You're coming to understand. You're, you're getting the message. It's coming through. You've learned and become convinced that, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that's right. But now, Jesus has to explain to them what kind of Christ He's going to be. Now, you've become convinced that I am the Christ. You're right about that. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You got it right. Now, let me explain what my task as the Messiah is. It may not be what you expect. And so verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, 
and be killed and raised up on the third day. And so that, that's got to be a shock. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the deliverer. You're the Savior. You're the one who's going to rescue us. Let me tell you what's going to happen to me. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. And I'm going to be killed. The third day I'm going to be raised up. Peter is so taken by that, he just, he just rejects it altogether. This will never happen to you. We, we're just not going to let this happen. And Jesus rebukes him, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now we know what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. What he means is, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. He didn't mean, I'm going to suffer a tragic accident. He meant, I'm going there and I'm going to be crucified. He knew that from the very beginning. And when he tells Jesus, when he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block, he's essentially saying to him, either get on board or get out of the way. You know, <laughs> because this is my mission I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified. And again, he knew that from the very beginning, from the very outset. You might remember in John chapter 3 and verse 14, in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so Jesus knew that he was going to be lifted up. Now in chapter 12 of John, we learn that that expression to be lifted up, when Jesus says that, he, he indicates what kind of death he was going to, to die. So that's Genesis, uh, John 12 and verse 32. If I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he would die. And so when he says, I'm going to be lifted up, he means I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be crucified. Matthew 16 is not the only place where Jesus talks about that. If you look at chapter 17 and verse 22, it says, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. He'll be raised on the third day. And they, they were deeply grieved, kind of like same reaction. And so I'm going, now, now they're, he's on his way to Jerusalem, leaving Caesarea for now he's in Galilee. Now let me tell you what's going to happen when we get there. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they're going to kill me, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. And he tells them again in chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus uh, was about to go up to Jerusalem, now he's getting closer. He's about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn Him to death. They'll hand Him over to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and crucify Him. And on the third day, He'll be raised up. And so, He's telling them this all along the way. This is what's going to happen. And so, you've got a high point of Jesus' ministry. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's great. You got it. I'm glad you understand. Now, let me tell you what my mission is. It's not what you expect. Going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be crucified. Now on the third day, I'll be raised up. I'm, I think they didn't understand what that last part meant until he actually was raised up. But that's what Jesus is telling. He's trying to pre pre prepare them. All four Gospels tell us that's exactly what happened. That Jesus went to Jerusalem. He was betrayed. 
He was delivered over into the hands of the Gentiles, the Romans, who nailed him to the cross. You can look at that in all four gospel accounts. Matthew chapter 26 is Matthew's account of the crucifixion. And uh, thought we might just read a few selected verses. Matthew chapter 27, not 26. Verse 26. Then he released Barabbas for them, and after having been scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, a reed in his right hand. They knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed and began to hit him on the head, beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put on his own garments and led him away to crucify him. Verse 33, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. At that time, verse 38, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 48, immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, he gave it to him to drink. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Just a few verses describing what Jesus told them would happen. He's betrayed by his own disciple, Judas. He's given into the hands of the Romans. They nail him to the cross and he's killed. Crucifixion was just a brutal, absolutely brutal, gruesome, inefficient form of execution. It is inefficient, isn't it? It's not efficient at all. <laughs> it's very inefficient. It's not quick and clean, and it's, it drags out over a long period of time. It's just agony for the victim. Uh, writers suggest that the people who are carrying out the execution, the crucifixion, that, you know, not, no, no holds barred, pretty much do what they wanted to to the victim. Here's how the ancient writers describe crucifixion. The extreme penalty, the worst of deaths, the terrible cross, the victim is executed in a shameful way. It's the most wretched of deaths, an utterly offensive affair, the, most, the utmost indignity, a horrific, disgusting business. They spoke of the terror of the cross. It was meant to completely humiliate the victim. It was done in public. The victim was stripped of his clothes. Those passing by could insult and abuse the victim. It was shameful to him, to the victim. It was shameful for his family. It was shameful for his associates and friends. And Jesus knew all of this going in, and he endured it all nonetheless. Because in the cross he was providing the necessary sacrifice to atone for your sin and for my sin. Ephesians 5 verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now with all of that in mind, let's go back to Matthew chapter 16. Now Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, and so forth. 
In verse 24, he says to his disciples, Now, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Oh, you think I'm the Messiah? You think I'm the Christ? You want to be on my team? <laughs> you, know? you think I'm going to go in and win the victory? We're going to just overcome all opponents? Let me tell you what it takes to be on my side, to be one of my followers. It means you must deny yourself. It means you must take up your cross and follow me. I, I'm not sure they understood all of that. It may be that they had the reaction, what, what, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> you know? What do you mean take up, our, take up our cross? Not Surely not that. But these are the things that are, are required of Jesus' disciples. When Jesus wanted to, in a nutshell, in, in a, kind of a summation, say here's what it means, here's what it takes, here's what's required to be my disciple. These are the three things that he says. You must deny yourself. To deny yourself is explained in the next verse. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his wife, life for my sake will find it. And so to deny ourselves means to give up our lives, to lose our lives, not, not physically, but to give up our lives to follow Him, to serve Him, to promote His interests. We know what it means to deny something. It means to say no to it. It means to disclaim a connection with it, to disavow it. That's from the dictionary. To deny something means to disclaim a connection with it. I am no longer connected with that thing. Whatever it is we're denying, I'm not associated with that any longer. What's the best known case of someone denying something in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament especially? What's the best known case? Somebody who denies something. Well, that's Peter, isn't it? That's the best known case. You find it in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is uh, being tried and Peter is following from a distance. He finds himself with those who are not disciples of Jesus. They put the pressure on Jesus, on Peter. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, 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 no. I, I don't know the man. A little bit later, oh, you're one of his disciples. I, I know. No, no, I'm not. I, I don't know him. Uh, he's disavowing any connection with Jesus. He's saying no to Jesus. He's rejecting Jesus. Oh, your speech gives you away. I can, you're a Galilean. You must be associated with him. He began to curse and swear. I, I don't know the man. Don't know him. Now, that's, that's denial. Now, I'm not saying we need to do what Peter did. We need to do what Peter did on that occasion about Christ, about our own lives about our own interests, our own ambitions, our own goals, all of that, our own interests. We say no to them, disavow our connection to them to serve Christ. Christ is our ambition. Christ is our goal. Christ is our interest, not self. There are those who did this. I think about Paul, for example. Now, Peter is a good example of that. He gave his life to Christ. Now, he stumbled on that one occasion, but of course, he becomes very faithful, <clears throat> very devoted to the cause of Christ. And so, uh, he uh, repents and, and, and does better. But Galatians chapter 2 talks about Paul. Paul says, now I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's no longer I who live. That's, that's self-denial, isn't it? But Christ lives in me. Now, now, he learned, hadn't he, what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus, to deny self, 
and follow Him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which now I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. You know, the Macedonians, they learned to deny themselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to, to give, to give money. They made a promise that they would do so, but to give money to help needy Christians back in, in Jerusalem. And he uses the Macedonians as an example. And, he, and so they're very poor. The Macedonians very poor, uh, in deep poverty, Paul says. But they gave generously. How could they do that? They're very poor, and yet they gave really beyond their ability. Well, verse 5 says, they first gave themselves to the Lord. And so, see, they, they had learned to deny self and follow the Lord. And so they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then their willingness to give, their material things, simply followed. John the Baptist is one who learned to deny self and exalt Christ. Remember the words of John? He must, I must decrease, he must increase. How about, is that true in our lives? Less and less of me, more and more of Christ. And so Jesus says, if you think I'm the Messiah, you think I'm the Christ, wonderful, you're on the right track. Now, let me tell you what it takes to be one of my followers. Deny yourself, say no to self, and begin to serve me. Now, there are some who did not do that. Look at Luke chapter 9. Here's a couple of good illustrations of some who were not willing to deny self. As they were going along the road, verse 57 says, Someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said to him, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, No one putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, there are a couple of things I want to highlight in, in two of those, you know, two of those examples. The, the first one is verse 59. Permit me first to go and bury my father. Nothing wrong with burying your father. But it's the me first part. Permit me first to go and bury my father. Now that's the problem. <laughs> and then the other one is, but first, I'll follow you, but first permit me to go, go and say goodbye to those at home. Now, that, now that's the problem. Nothing wrong with saying goodbye to your, your family, but there's something I've got to do first before I follow you. No, that's not going to work. You deny yourself, that has practical implications, and then follow me. Of course, Jesus provides the best example. Not my will, but yours be done. That's, that's the best example of denying self, isn't it? And then, of course, he goes to the cross. This will never be popular, will it? Never. <laughs> this, will never this will never be popular. You know, there, there are lots of people who claim to be Christians, and they kind of get into that comfortable Christian mode that, that just, you know, there's... It just goes kind of very smoothly, you know, no, no real sacrifice. But being a true disciple is just completely counter to everything our culture promotes. See, the culture promotes me first. Me first. I'm going to get mine. Now you, you, get, you get yours if you can, but I'm going to get mine. But Jesus says, no, mm -mm. me first. 
That means deny self and follow Him. The second thing that He requires here, of course, is to take up, each person is to take up His cross. What, what does that mean, to take up the cross? Each one of us is to take up our cross. Well, it doesn't mean to endure the sufferings common to people. Now, we use the expression like that sometimes. Oh, I got some bad arthritis, but you know, I guess that's just my cross to bear. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about you've got to endure the ailments and injuries and illnesses and setbacks that are common, the common lot of men. That's not really what he means. It means these things. Making the necessary sacrifices involved in being a disciple of Jesus. The cross was a sacrifice. We've already seen that, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. If we're going to take, each one of us take up his cross or her cross, we've got to be willing to make the necessary sacrifices involved in being a Christian. That may mean sacrificing material things. It may mean sacrificing income. It may mean sacrificing family relationships. It may mean sacrificing friendship relationships. It might mean sacrificing a job or a goal or an ambition. You see, being a disciple of Jesus comes with a price. There's a price to be paid. Now, there's a price to be paid for every decision we make. If we reject being a disciple, there's a price to be paid. But there's a price to be paid for being a disciple. What is it? It's taking up your cross and following Him. Making the necessary sacrifices. It means humbling ourselves. That's Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Imagine, we've talked about crucifixion, we talked about, you know, we read a few verses about the crucifixion, talked about what ancient writers said about it. Imagine the creator of the universe dying stripped on a Roman cross. That's, that's humility, isn't it? That's a person humbling himself. It means eliminating the pride that would prevent us from stooping to serve others. Jesus kneels down and washes his disciples' feet, eliminating the pride that would prevent us from stooping to serve others. And so whenever we're called on to do this or that task that seems beneath us, do it in his name. That's our cross to bear. It means humbling ourselves. It means being obedient. He became obedient to the point of death, the death on the cross. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. The test of obedience comes when we prefer not to obey. That's the test. When it's inconvenient to obey, when we really don't want to obey, when it's costly to obey, when it hurts us to obey. That's the test of true obedience. You see, if we obey when it doesn't hurt, if we obey only when it's convenient, if we obey when it doesn't cost us anything, and then in other times, oh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. You know? We're not obeying at all, really. We're doing our own will. We're doing what God asks us to do when it passes our own will. Now, obedience in all things, that's our cross to bear. It means being willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. You know, I suppose if we associate anything with the cross, it would be suffering Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. We can ask ourselves this question. 
have I suffered in any way as a disciple? Look over the course of your life. Have I suffered in any way <laughs> as a disciple? You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who would live godly in Christ Jesus, some versions say, will suffer persecution, will experience persecution, will experience some kind of suffering. Where have I suffered? Because I'm a Christian. To suffer as a disciple, that's our cross to bear. These disciples must have been at a loss to understand what Jesus meant. He was the Messiah. He's going to deliver them. What did He mean? Every disciple must bear His cross. Well, we've reflected on that some. And then the third thing He says is, now follow Me. We've been preaching and will continue to, to teach a series of lessons based on Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4, where these victorious disciples followed the Lamb wherever He went. That's what we want to do. We want to follow Christ, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. No doubt in Revelation 14, that's to death. They followed the Lamb wherever He went, even if it meant to death. Our lessons are going to be on things like following Jesus to the temple, where I must be about my Father's business. Following Jesus to the Jordan, where Jesus was baptized. We want to follow Jesus wherever He goes, even to being baptized. Following Jesus into the wilderness, where He'll be tempted, lesson on temptation. Following Jesus into Galilee, a lesson on teaching and reaching out to others. Following Jesus to Gethsemane, a lesson on prayer and dependence on God. Following Jesus to the cross, we've talked about that some. Following Jesus in His resurrection, raised to walk in a new life. And following Jesus to the right hand of God, a lesson on going to heaven. Now not everybody is willing to follow Jesus wherever He goes. You see, self-denial is required to do that. The Pharisees certainly were not willing to follow Jesus wherever He went. They were unbelievers. The rich young ruler thought he was willing to follow, but it turns out that he wasn't. Some disciples in John chapter 6, after listening to Jesus, said, This is a hard saying. Who can, who can accept it? And then in verse 66, they turned back and didn't follow him anymore. However, others are willing to follow him wherever he goes. Look at Mark chapter 1. A couple of quick examples there. Mark chapter 1, Jesus sees Peter and Andrew in a boat. And he invites them to come and follow him. And it says they got out of the boat, immediately left their nets, and, and followed him. You see, following Jesus wherever he goes means leaving material things behind. They got out of the boat, they left their nets behind, left the worldly things behind to follow Jesus. And in the very next verse, he sees James and John, and they're mending their nets. And he calls them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. You see, following Jesus wherever he goes means leaving those earthly relationships behind. And so, some are not willing to follow Jesus, but some are. In John chapter 6 and verse 68, after those disciples turn away and don't follow after Him any longer, Jesus turns to the apostles and says, What about you? Are you going to leave as well? Do you remember what Peter says? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? <laughs> you, know. you're, 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 you have the words. We're going to follow you. I'm sure he understood the totality of what that meant, but he certainly expressed... Uh, a noble idea. We're, we're going to follow you. There's no one else. 
Are we willing to follow Christ wherever He goes? Are we willing to say, if Jesus taught it, I'll do it. If Jesus lived it, I'll live it. That's following Christ wherever He goes. What's required of disciples? When Jesus wanted to summarize that in a brief statement, this is what He said. If anyone wishes to come after me, if you think I'm the Christ, the Savior, the Deliverer, and you want to be with me, here's what you got to do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship you. And Father, we pray that the things that we've done today have been pleasing to you. We're thankful for your word, that we can look into it, that we can learn from it, that we can learn the things that you ask of us, that you want to see and find in us. And help us, Father, to take these messages and live them out in our lives, to make them part of our heart and part of our thinking and part of our behavior as well. Father, we understand, we believe, we're convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We want to follow Him. We want to be among His disciples. Help us, Father, each day to think less of self and more of Him. Help us every day, Father, to take up our own personal cross and follow Him, to be willing to humble ourselves, to be obedient, to make the necessary sacrifices required to follow Him. And Father, help us to follow Him wherever He goes, through times of ease, but times of difficulty as well. Help us, Father, as we follow Him, to bear up under all circumstances, to meet all challenges as He did. Help us to follow His example and walk in His steps. Help us, Father, to do these things more and more each day along the way. We pray these things in His name. Amen.